0: Dan and Corey here, welcoming you in to Libservative. The great fundamental issue now before our people... Hey, everyone. Dan here. Uh, As you may have noticed by now, we were unable to do a live broadcast this week as Corey and I had a bit of a crazy week uh, separately, though, not together, which I'm sure you'll hear plenty about on our next live broadcast. But seeing as Corey and I were unable to do uh, a new episode this week, uh, we've decided to rerun an episode or an interview, I should say, from earlier this summer with Tristan Taylor, Uh, from Detroit Will Breathe. Uh, Among the things discussed in the interview were uh, race relations in the United States, as well as policing um, and the way we police in the United States, as well as some possible uh, reforms. If you are new to the show and you did not have an opportunity to hear this interview from Earlier in the summer, uh, we invite you to give it a listen. We have some agreements and we have some disagreements, um, but all in all, a, a really good conversation, which is the thing that we obviously strive for uh, on this show, particularly when doing interviews with people that we may have a few disagreements with. So uh, we really hope you enjoy it. If you haven't heard it, if you've heard it already, uh, we invite you to give it uh, a re listen, maybe pick out some new things that uh, you didn't hear. The first time around. So we hope you enjoy the interview here with Tristan Taylor from Detroit Will Breathe. Tristan, uh, just give the people a, a little bit of a background, um, just as far as uh, your, your activism background, but also maybe a personal background that made you kind of get into the
1: work that you do. Um, I um, am a native Detroiter, like, born and raised, Um, and as part of that experience of being a Detroiter, you know, experiencing, like, the criminal injustice system, like, through my family, seeing it firsthand, going to, like, dilapidated, inadequate, like, school systems, um, I developed a consciousness of inequality um and when i was um, 17 years old uh, became politically active um around you know defending affirmative action programs uh, which at that time was under attack um in a federal lawsuit and i um you that that experience of like you know fighting to defend like You know, a program that was the byproduct of the civil rights movement, one of the only few, you know, gains that were still around um, that created opportunity for people like me to go to college. Um, It opened my eyes up not only to like how deep the inequality was um, and, you know, getting a sense of the system of inequality, um, but also. Getting a sense of how people and movements and workers and oppressed people could organize to deal with that system.
0: So I think uh, I'll just start off with what detractors might say to to a lot of what you just said, which is mm-hmm. that I, I I hear a lot of conservative talking points about you know how well not everybody in America can can support. Uh, racist systems, and you know, you're not inherently racist, or you're not inherently prejudiced. And not even necessarily just racist. We're not inherently prejudiced. Uh, and my comment to that has always been right, but we still have a system that is based on uh, on racism and on prejudice that we have when we haven't fixed those things yet. So while the individual might not ha- not have prejudice, and even the people working within that system might not have inherent prejudice. It's still in the systems that we use to police, to uh, decide who gets certain jobs, where. Um, so I wonder if you want to expound on that.
1: Yeah, I think my experience in um, engaging people in debate around like affirmative action uh, made it clear to me that people, in particular white people, had a really hard time understanding systemic racism Um, and the ways in which that impacts the things that we see and don't see, the things we experience and don't experience, and the things that we take for granted or don't take for granted. And it also made it very clear to me why segregation is an important tool like the physical segregation of a peoples make it all too easy for people to have misconceptions of each other because they don't have real dealings with one each other with one another and so that's what makes it so much easier to believe in these myths that we are taught like about oppressed people um but even the experience we're taught about ourselves right like before two thousand eight, there were a bunch of white people who just knew that this system had a space for them, and they found out after the housing crash that in fact it did not.
2: Exactly. So we grew up, just you and I, just short miles from each other. But like, even though some of the systematic racism things that we talk about, it's very, very apparent visually what those systematic things did. Because us all being from Detroit, we talk about eight mile, you know, like the wall, the iron curtain, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like the systematic things of like redlining, gerrymandering, you know, like, let's talk about the white flight, how we have a city that had an infrastructure for like, what was it like 2 million people? And then half the people just left. And now there's a bunch of blight and everyone's like, Oh, it's just a mess down there. It's like, well, the city was built for twice as many people. And it's like, when you, it's these things that you see, they're like that you don't really see that are there that we have younger like especially I feel like younger people they they don't it's like the the change takes so long that people now just wake up and they go oh well there's no racism now but like you can see the negative effects of it
0: well Does just makes sense just to expound on that too Tristan before you go it's it's the it's this idea of like well you know I I was born in 1988 I'm not responsible for you know that 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 weird trope i'm not responsible for the civil rights atrocities or i'm not responsible for slavery but it's like but you do you are to me especially as a white person still very responsible for understanding that history and why we still have the things happening today because of that history
1: right and what people don't recognize is the ways in which they participate in the continuation of inequality um and how they aren't contributing to a society that's better. In fact, when you say, Well, it's not my responsibility, when you abdicate your role in making a, the world a better place, like you are in fact helping the system of inequality flourish. But worse than that, when people themselves adopt and accept the stereotypes that are put forward about people of color, accept the systems and the way they enforce inequality Um, don't actually speak out and give assistance to struggles that are occurring, where people are asking for help in fighting and exposing the inequality they face. Yeah, that's when those are the ways in which you bear responsibility.
0: I think we're seeing that more and more because you had mentioned the the housing crash of 2008 and, you know, white people... At least to a uh, more of a degree, kind of experiencing what that sort of socioeconomic inequality can feel like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I think we're seeing it even more and more uh, as as years go by. You know, we're seeing more wealth be moved upward. We saw that through COVID. I mean, this isn't it's it's at a point now where it's like if if you're white and you and you didn't get it before, it's happening to it's at least starting to happen to you now. Imagine what that must have felt like and how how hard it must be to, you know, dig out of a hole like that from generational inequality.
1: Yeah, but it also speaks to how our, like, futures have always been intertwined. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have to think about the fact that the same people who are responsible for instituting and upholding institutions of inequality, you know, racism, sexism, anti LGBTQ bigotry, are also people who are responsible for implementing policies that hurt the working class more broadly. Like, they're one and the same people. Um, and in fact, their ability to do harm to the working class is predicated on the basis of them... Um, creating a buffer between sectors of the working class um, that stops them from uniting around the common causes that they face.
0: It's kind of the, if you, if you keep, uh, if you keep the peasants fighting with each other, Mm -hmm. uh, they're not going to fight with the the institutions above them that put these things in place. I think that's kind of what you're getting at.
2: This one's a leftist, Dan. (laughs) I can hear it. He's not, he's not, no. So on our show, we typically talk about uh, like, like how leftists and liberals are like a very, very, very different leftists. Like you, you keep talking about like the working class and things like that. Like how you, it's like, it's about bringing everyone together to make things better. For example, like just recently, the ruling on Roe v. Wade, I saw a friend who was frustrated on Facebook and he was talking about how he was commenting on all these people that he knew voted for Trump who said that they can't believe this happened. and he's, And he said, was like bragging about how he was telling them to fuck off. They voted for this. And I was like, no, 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 hold on. This is your chance to say, "I'm glad you see this." And you, this isn't a joke anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to work together to get this fixed. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that knee jerk reaction that everyone has. It's just been almost like what I, I don't want to call it maybe a sigh up. It's just people have been force fed, you know, like mainstream media and certain things that reach biases and get into echo chambers to where they attach themselves to their opinions so much that like anytime someone attacks an opinion that they don't agree with. They have an emotional knee jerk reaction
1: because they're emotionally attached to it. I remember um, Dave Chappelle doing an interview with Oprah. Um, this was when he like left for Africa, like at the end of the Dave Chappelle show. Oh yeah, that yeah. hiatus um, that he took. He, yeah, the hiatus where he just like disappeared and came back. Um, and he was talking to Maya Angelou, who made the point that you know it's really important to be angry, but not bitter. She's like, anger, you could dance with it. You could create with it. You could sing with it. But she's like, there's nothing that you can do with bitterness, but let it fester. And I think what we have to understand is for us, the working class and oppressed, to express and organize our collective power, we have to use our anger. And that includes engaging with people who also share that anger. And it doesn't matter if they're just sharing it now or if they shared it five years ago. The point, the most important point, is that they're where they are now. And that gives us a stronger basis than we had before to build a stronger and bigger movement, to make sure that all the things that we've been talking about forever, we, like the left, are um, actually dealt with. Because what is true, and I think this is something that a lot of leftists kind of get but don't get, and it's a difficult thing to wrap your head around, is at the end of the day, people learn through their experiences, through their lived experiences. And we have to find a way to engage with those experiences, create spaces so that people can have discussions and debates about them. So instead of shaming people for being ignorant, um, for good reason, those peoples are in. And again, segregation allows you mm-hmm. to have all of those prejudices. In fact, it reinforces those prejudices, right? And we know that segregation is an institutional policy. It's not something that just naturally occurs. It's always an enforceable act in different ways, right? So when white flight occurred, it occurred because banks conspired with realty associations to make sure white people had dirt cheap loans and incentivize them moving out to the suburbs in part because they also wanted to make money off of development, right? And so for every new house they built, for every mortgage they gave, that was more money that they were getting. So there was an economic incentive but it was also a political one too. It was ways in which they could reinforce the very segregation that was being under attack and defeated by the civil rights movement, which by the time of the late sixties and seventies were not only becoming more radical, but like millions of young white people were part of it and part of this process of radicalization. And so for the powers that be, the capitalists, they're really smart. And they find ways to reinforce those social norms that help them maintain their ideology.
2: You're right. Actually, when you think about the sixties and seventies in the history, like during the civil rights movement, you know, it was was predominantly the black culture. And then there was the counterculture movement that was predominantly white. And it was two very big social movements happening at the same time, but they were kind of separate segregated.
1: Well, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about like, For example, there were thousands of white people that marched screaming Free Huey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I'm talking about thousands and millions of white people directly engaged in the struggle for civil rights. There were hundreds of white people who went down to the South to get arrested as part of the Free to Ride alone. So no, I'm talking about like people's direct engagement. There's a white woman, I can't think of her name in Detroit who was killed in the South because she went down to volunteer to help register people to vote.
0: It's, it's oh, interesting wow. that you bring that up because it, it actually feeds into something that uh, Corey and I talked about discussing with you um, because it's something that kind of annoys us. And, and it's something that's so different from what you just spoke about, which is white people – Boots on the ground actually involved in the civil rights movement historically, and and the thing that really annoys us is is kind of this uh, keyboard bumper sticker activism by white people. Absolutely fucking drives me insane. And you know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about the white suburban mom who takes to Twitter, tw- tweets out bitches about racism in the South, and then goes back to you know her out into her her front yard, which is an all white neighborhood, and it's like. All you're doing to me is grandstanding, you're showboating to me, and it's, it's just, it's, it's never helpful in that situation. And I'm wondering if um, you see a lot of that, or is there, I mean, with social media, it's crazy, but like, is there a way to get less of that and more of what you just mentioned?
1: Well, I think the challenge is, again, making sure that these movements have spaces where the movement itself can have discussion and debate with each other. Um, I think that's really important. And oftentimes that is the thing that's missing. Let's just be frank. Mm -hmm. Part of the experience of 2020 was for me an interesting one because I saw ways in which it was actually really difficult to have political discussions. Because oftentimes people were so focused on acting and doing and having a morally correct position and enforcing that position like on everyone else, not just simply the institutions, but being like, you know, who are you to not support the demands of black people in Detroit without thinking of like, oh, how do we convince people? Cause in the end, we gotta do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And exactly what are we talking about? And why are these demands important? And are they the right demands? Because those questions are important to discuss and debate in order for the movement to consolidate its power and make sure that it doesn't get swallowed up and co-opted by the liberals in the end which is what happened to the Black Lives Matter movement in mm-hmm. 2020. And so that's why it's even more important for the movement to create spaces where people can talk to one each other in a lot, in a, and not just like in an individual way, not just like let's have some parties, like sure, sure, sure. But no, let's have organized political discussions about what are the type of politics We need to make the shit that we are calling for happen because it's not going to happen simply by a bunch of individuals individually talking about these things on social media. It's not even going to happen if people just march without having a strategy for how to make what in reality is limited forces effective. Against institutions that have found a way to exist and maintain themselves for 250 plus years through civil wars and radical struggles, uh, uprisings in urban cities all across the country. Capitalism has been able to survive all of that. World Global war has been able to survive all of that. So, like, we really have to think if we're going to change this institution, if we're going to, like, actually, like, create an alternative, which in the end is what we need. Like, we've got to think about all of that, which means it's not enough just to be right.
2: Because you can be right and shout each other down. It doesn't matter how right you are. If you have no one on your side, then no one's, you're not, you you can be right by yourself, but if you're not convincing people to join the, the group. You're not going to get anything done.
1: If you're just looking to join just for the sake of joining, well, that creates so much space for the liberals to come in and insert their demands as the demands that everyone should be fighting for. And so people will be like, oh, we want to fight against police brutality, but we don't think defunding the police is the problem because even though we have had this big ass discussion about the institution of policing and how wrong it is, really, isn't it just a problem with bad police officers? Because that's what Joe Biden says.
2: Yeah, it's just bad police officers. That's what Obama
1: says. That's the other thing. It's worse because we have black people, which is why the movement has to really discuss and debate what its demands are because the capitalists can surely find black people To say all the things they want them to say. Yeah. Obama is like back away from defunding the movement. Let me let me like Goldman
2: Sachs just fund them. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Oh no, for real. It's just like, all right, y'all. Like I see you like angry and you gotta be angry, but really you just gotta be smart about it. Because what else are we gonna do? Well, and and I think
0: I think and Corey and I have talked about this a, a ton. It's it's like defund is, is one of those, it's, it's so interesting because I've I've actually kind of viewed it a little bit as kind of like a bad marketing campaign, mm-hmm. you know, because when people hear like defund the police, right, you you, the, the, you know, the Blue Lives Matter people are like, you want to just take money away from our cops? It's like, that's not really what we're trying to say necessarily. It's really more of a, I mean, the way I've always understood, it, it's really more of a, a reform movement, right? As far as like, Rethinking the way that we police in this country because yeah. it's fucking no more
2: nuts. military equipment, let's work well,
1: on right. see, mental issues. This is why we have to have a discussion because some yeah. people mean that. There you go, but that still leaves the system intact. If the problem is police as an institution because they are an institution that enforces the rule of capitalism, then yes, actually, we do have to find ways to abolish that institution. Yes, we do want to take away the funding from the police and make it zero. We don't need police because they don't. And Uvaldi is a great example of this, an (laughs) unfortunate but tragic example of how the things we are told the police are supposed to do are in reality not what they are there to do. They are not there to serve and protect us, people, they are there when the companies need security to make sure strikers don't stop production. They call the, the staff, police. They call the police. Yeah. When, when, when cities um, need um, protection against uh, protesters who are raising criticisms, they, they call the police.
0: So I guess what I would ask you to follow up on my last question would be, if they, and maybe there's no way to do this, but if there was a way to reform policing t- into a way where they actually did what it says on the side of their cars, right? Protect and serve. I mean, is that is that some sort of impossibility that we can't possibly have at this point because this institution is so ridiculous at this point? It's, absolutely. Right. Yeah.
2: So I, what I'm going to say right now, <clears throat> real quick, just for this little conversation. So me and Dan, we talk about it like our biases and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. me and Dan grew up in a different area where that servant protect definitely meant something a lot different in our neighborhood mm-hmm. than it did in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So when we see police just based on, like we said, interactions and life things, we honestly do, we see police differently, but I also see the nitty gritty. And like, I understand like how, like if there's a bad cop and the other good cops aren't standing up to say that that cop's bad, then you're all bad. But let's think about the, your experience. Corey and Dan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we'll we almost have to take a step back and what exactly does defund mean and what does reform mean? Because I think on a lot of these issues we're on the same thing. I'm tired of seeing police show up to an autistic outbreak at a house and the cops shooting the autistic person. Mm -hmm. I'm tired of seeing black people who have their CPLs, like Philander Castile, and getting killed and then not seeing the NRA stand up for them when there was their gun rights. I'm tired of seeing police showing up with a piss poor attitude because there was an argument at a, at a party or something. And then someone ends up getting shot or a child gets shot to like through the door. These things aren't good. There's it's, it's insane to me that the police system that we have now kills roughly 2000 people a year. Mm-hmm. And it is like, and like, like, so I understand like what defund means. Like we need like the system we have now does not work at all. Mm-hmm. And so I think, where I want this conversation to kind of go is what exactly does defund mean? What do we do? I guess after that, we still need first responders, but then a lot of times when you really think about that, what is a first responder? We don't need a guy with a gun showing up to every single goddamn thing.
0: Absolutely. I agree with that hundred percent.
1: Okay. Well, part of the issue is really thinking about, and this is important, not just what our experiences are individually. But what are the dynamics, the reality, the totality of the experiences that we have collectively, um, and that occur in general? Your relationship to police where you're from is different than a black person's 100% relationship. Hundred percent
2: different. Where you're
1: from. So, like, think about it. That same police that you view as serving your interests or not doing you harm, part of how they serve you and your community is by being the enforcer of segregation. I see where you're going, yep. Because the problem is you can't separate that functioning that the police have in your communities Of being the gatekeepers. We're the beneficiaries of of people. And does it benefit you? Actually, no. But that is the role they play. And they play less of a hostile role to you because, in part, that's not what their role is until you enter into a hostile relationship with the state. So when you're a white person and you show up for Black Lives and you're challenging the police, then it's fair game.
2: And they make a big deal about you not being from the city. That's right. Yep. Yep. Okay. Right. Yeah, now yeah, they yeah. love
1: you, actually. In fact, they're developing buildings and hotels to hope that you come and spend money here. They don't want you that way. So, yeah. Like when, when you're. Don't you dare you come down here. Okay, you come down here and play games. Okay. <laughs> you come down here and go to the bars. Don't come down here fighting for equality. Stay your ass in the suburbs if you're gonna do that. Just come down here if you're trying to have fun and spend money. It's
2: interesting because Chief Craig almost said that exact same thing.
0: That's what I love about this conversation because um, you know Tristan pointing out that you know kind of viewing it from thirty thousand feet. But as we talked about earlier, you know we do still we have our biases and we do still you know speak about our experiences based on our experiences. And you know I I can't speak for Corey, but I know me growing up in Clawson basically a small town that's tucked in as a suburb of Detroit. Everybody knows everybody. We all know all the cops and everything. Um, don't be wrong. I had some stupid, like ridiculous experiences with cops wow. as a kid, hey, but <laughs> yeah, nothing, n- nothing like, you know, what, what you might experience if you were in the same situation as me, Tristan, but, I, you know, I can't see that. And so like hearing that from you and, and hearing Corey's experiences, you know, it, it, it gets the wheels turning. And that's, that's why I think these conversations are important. Yeah.
2: And that's why I brought it up, Dan. I was thinking it was really important to like th- talk about how like us being north of eight mile, our experience is very different. And then sometimes you see things through a rose pair of glasses. It's not always the same. Or Me you personally. See,
1: you see things through the limited experience you are given.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly That's
1: why segregation is so important As a political tool for capitalism To maintain those inequalities Like you are seeing a picture that you are presenting And in fact there are a whole set of ways In which you are blocked from seeing another side But you have to take extra special effort In fact to hear what the other story is and we have to, in part, as white people, take the extra effort to make sure it's out there because we're both facing a state institution, you know, like corporate media um, that is trying to obfuscate that truth. So that's the thing that we also have to understand. Like, you know, if, if white people like don't know, is because there is great effort to make sure they don't know. Uh, it's well, not, it, yeah, it's a passive yeah, so thing. You, so, so you have to you have to attack that effort and get people to, that's why it's important for people to tell their stories. Um, I, even though I know a lot of activists are sick of telling stories, you, you always hear this thing of like, oh, you know, like it's not black people's job to, you know, um, make sure white people like learn about racism. To be honest, how the fuck else are you gonna learn it? Well, right, it's, yeah. It's, it's, so, it's, so, <laughs>
0: it's so it's so funny that you put it that way because you know we just had this little discussion about policing and you know you put something new into my brain. I I thought I thought at least for a white guy I knew quite a bit about racism and, and yeah. you know even black history at least for a white guy yeah. and it's it's putting this I know Juneteenth. Yeah. No. It's, it's black. <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. But yeah, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, it's yeah? getting yeah. my wheels spinning in as far as like you know. We never know as much as we think we know. None of us do.
1: None of us do. And that's true for activists, which is why it's always important not only to have these discussions, but to make sure the movement is elevating the different experiences that oppressed and working class people are having. Because quite frankly, even though black people in general have experiences with racism, the experience of a Black middle-class person is very, very different from the experience of a Black working-class person. And those differences have to be communicated, mainly so that we know when we are hearing people, we get to identify what they represent and what interests they're putting forward. Like Barack Obama's experience is very different than mine which is why his interests are also very different from mine. He, in fact, does not represent me and, quite frankly, can't in a way because of the choice he made to have a place in that system of inequality as opposed to doing what he could have done. He could have transformed the character of this nation, right? Like He could have made the banks and corporations pay. And he was like, no, they're cool. Uh, like, and it's yep, not. That's exactly It was, it was like. under his administration. I think people have to think about this, that we saw the militarization of the police in a major way.
2: You're right. There was a bill he passed that they, they uh, if you want to, I forget what the bill was, but they let just the police just buy just a surplus of a ridiculous amount. Or give amount it of away. It's there. a 1033 or just, program. Yeah, that's it, what it, it was. They were like, yeah. oh, we
1: have all this like surplus. And give it to local police departments, which is why, yeah. like you know, even small towns have tanks. And you know, just just picking, going back to rather the conversation around like what does defunding the funding police mean? I think part of the answer to that is it has to mean what communities need, right? Um, and there's uh, an activist in Detroit. Uh, the way he answers that question, he was like, "You want to know what the fund the police looks like? It looks like the suburbs." Where like the police department doesn't take forty percent of like the general fund, um, and where you have schools and rec centers and resources for people—that's what it looks like. So the question is, why are we prioritizing institutions that we know are failing instead of putting resources into institutions we know? help stabilize communities like housing like we know affordable housing is a great way to stabilize communities we know having community centers and after school programs like help young people like focus and like give them opportunities to develop like different and creative skills so what does it mean that we decided instead of funding those things that we know work that people fought for because they knew that was the way to increase quality of life. What does it mean that we don't fund those things and instead fund punitive state that, you know, like mechanisms of the of the punitive yeah.
2: state? Just shut up because we got a bigger gun than you and just keep peace and just be quiet <laughs> is what that kind of says to me. Like when I'm walking down this in the city. And you see a bunch of cops dressed like they're in Afghanistan. It doesn't make me feel safer, but I know I'm not going to go and try to do anything silly. And what kind of, what is that freedom? That's not freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's me with my skin with a lot less melanin than yours. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So like, it's, yeah, it's, I, yeah.
0: So, yeah, I mean, where I was going to go was that the pushback is obviously a, it's, it's often a very libertarian pushback of, you know, you, you mentioned uh, better, ho- you know, more affordable housing and more programs. It's it, a lot of it always comes back to the corruption and the inefficiency of of government, mm-hmm. um, and that's what a lot of libertarians point to. And I just mm-hmm. wonder, I just wonder how you how you combat statements like that when you when you hear things like that because there are, I mean, there are a lot of examples of governments being remarkably inefficient with some of these programs and where they put money and corruption and, and kickbacks mm-hmm. and whatnot.
2: Mm-hmm. A perfect example is in the city of Detroit with Duggan with the uh the teardowns of the homes
1: right right no um which by the way were use were you they, they, they use funds that were supposed to go towards helping people stay in their homes to do those demolitions <laughs> <Interesting>. uh, <sighs> so, um, so, gross. so and, and and the Democrats and Republicans signed off on that by the way converting that well, yeah because there's stuff money. in their own pockets but also because it aligns with the interests of the corporations upon which they serve. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. So like, what's my response to my like, government inefficiency, um, direct democracy and community control of those resources.
2: And citizens United and you know, all these different things that just makes all these politicians have self and in are in the front of their mind versus I mean, actually like, serving the people. I
1: and mean, They've always had it, but here's the thing, right? Like, If you are genuinely trying to serve your community and that's why you become a public official and that's why you work within those institutions, it doesn't matter that you're genuine. Those institutions are set up to sabotage any genuine effort to make government prioritize the will of the people. And when they fail to be, that's when corporations fight to change, to reform the way government functions, to guarantee that that's what happens. Um, And so that's why it's so important for us to build a movement that is talking about and putting for community and worker control of the resources. We, the community, should directly decide not only what programs we have, but how we run it. Like that's the way to take away the corruption that goes into having, you know, seven people like govern for a city of 600,000. Like there's no way that that seven or nine people could effectively represent the interests of that large populace. Right. Here's the thing. What's interesting is not just government corruption that's responsible for that. I think that's the thing that the libertarians don't get. It's not just mere corruption. It's actual intervention of other state institutions or federal institutions that create that situation. So, for example, like the large exodus that happened in Detroit, which people don't know this, but up until the 90s, the black population in Detroit was steadily increasing. And that <laughs> yeah, Detroit was, was the city blackest city in America. Not, but no, I'm saying that the black population was increasing. We always talk about like oh, okay. you know Detroit losing population. It lost white population, but it wasn't losing population. Like in the 90s, it was still a city of 900,000 people, which makes it one of the top 20 biggest c- cities in the country. It's it's still like one of the top 25 like largest cities like in the country. So the issue of what is taking place in Detroit now isn't because we don't have enough people. Like The issue that we are facing now is a byproduct of the social institutions that we fought to be built being privatized and taken away by the direct intervention of a state legislator combined of suburban districts cities and towns that had a complete hostile relationship to Detroit and didn't just want Detroit to, that that had a mission of making sure Detroit failed. In, In general, in Michigan, we have us aging, and, and joining population. That's why there are school districts in the suburbs that have had to close schools uh, because of lack of population.
0: That is true. Um, yeah, less kids in
1: so the, 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 the real problem, again, is segregation, because what it means to not have regionalized resources, by that I mean, when you think about like the school system, imagine how much money and how many quality schools you could build if you combine 20 school districts together, like instead of having each city have its own school district that includes overhead for each school district, right? We're talking administrators. We're talking like principals, like we're talking like infrastructure. If you like combined all of that together, like you could pull those resources to create like really good quality schools and quality public services. But those suburbs were created in part to take away, right? To like, you know, make sure that those resources weren't shared collectively. Um, and create, they based it on property tax. Yeah, and 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 create bastions of opposition, like to the goal of equality, um, because that's in part what white flight was. It was to create suburbs that could be buffers to, in reality, restrict the growth of black power that was being expressed like in detroit in the 70s um and it, it you have to understand that what is happening in detroit now is the result of government intervention not corruption or inefficiency it is because the federal government uh beginning with reagan um, started cutting federal funding that these larger, poor s- cities needed in order to maintain the infrastructure that folks needed to maintain the quality of life, right? And when you think about the state interventions in the public school system, like, they totally decimated it.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's like, regardless of how you feel about socialism as a whole, right, I've, I've always had a, a very similar view to you, Tristan, when it comes to schools, because it's like, what what is really preventing you from giving all school districts and all kids you know equal opportunity? We, you, you always hear about the statistics. You always hear about how shitty the United States is in education, whatever it is, like 27s in the world in math uh, and all this nonsense. And then you also hear about, whether you're talking about Detroit, whether you're talking about Southside Chicago, Harlem, uh, South Central LA, you're always talking about A, a heavy black population, but B, shitty schools. And they always say, well, you got to start with the schools. You got to start with the education. But it's like, how?
2: <laughs> how? And it's
0: funny, Dan, actually,
2: because I just had this little argument in my head because there's typically like the thing that we go to and we talk about government inefficiency. It's like, well, the Department of Education keeps getting bigger and more money keeps going into it, yet schools keep doing worse. But then I th- as I'm thinking about it, I, the, the devil's advocate I throw on it is if we made the school system where each individual school gets the same amount of money no matter what property taxes or how many students go there, there's going to be people in these rich suburbs who are all of a sudden going to be like, oh, well, we definitely have to throw more money at schools in general. Does that make sense?
1: Well, I mean, they the pro- but this is where segregation is a problem mm-hmm. because some schools in the suburbs are really great. Um, and they're great based on the fact that they're all white, like there's no separating that, especially in the United States. Um, this is why, like, if you're going to have like quality public schools that present equal opportunity to everyone, they have to be integrated, right? Why? Because you have to take away the ability of that separation to occur. Um, which is the bastion for that unequal distribution of wealth and resources. Um, And you also have to think about the ways in which, like even when you have, hypothetically, you could have Detroit public schools receiving the same amount of money as the schools in the suburbs, which is a big hypothetical because under capitalism, like you, you just couldn't do that. But even if you did, when Detroit Public Schools, as an example, was taken by taken over um, by the state in 1999, it wasn't a fiscal crisis. They said there was an academic crisis and they happened to take over Detroit Public Schools the moment it was to receive a billion dollar millage to invest in schools and build new ones. And under the control of the state, the school district went from a surplus to a $250 million deficit.
2: Oh, the city was about to invest its own money into the, into the education system. And the state came in and went, no, no, holy shit. I did not know that caveat. When, when, when
1: exactly no one ever knows or Chicago or any of those places that have not had a democratic elected school board. I don't know, since the 2000s. So the state... That's wild. And that shows how the state, when we we have to think of it, um, and and I'm sorry I'm saying state because sometimes I sound abstract, but like institutions like the Department of Education, right? Institutions like um, uh, uh, Secretary of Education uh, or titles like that, like... Bureaucracies. Those bureaucracies exists to enforce inequality. Why? Because in the end, equality costs money. And if the capitalists are telling you they don't want to pay taxes, well, guess what that means?
2: They're going to take what they only have left of the little taxes they collected and put that to places where they think is the most... Yeah, 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 yeah. That's
1: Uh, Even and only when they have to. And when they don't have to, they don't.
2: As evidenced by three percent taxes <laughs> that Jeff Bezos pays.
1: Yeah, and also by evidence of the growing inequality nationwide across mm-hmm. the working class. Period. Whole sections yeah. of people not having the opportunity to buy homes. I'm one of them. Millions right of people with like going, graduating from college with massive student debt. No, like that is a byproduct of the capitalists saying we're not funding opportunity anymore because opportunity costs and the government is like you're right so we're going to find ways to make it the responsibility of the people themselves so parents be prepared to mortgage up your house to send your kids to college if you can even a afford degree, degree. exactly and to get a degree that in reality they really can't do nothing anything with right because of the way in which we've like made the job market also hyper exploitative yeah so like it's it's one of those, it's like, it's, it's a, um, a, a bait and switch in a sense too. Right. Like when, 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 cause when you, when you kind of zoom out a little bit and look at it, like, you know, as it's happening, you're like, like, no, this is interconnected. And really what they're doing in the suburbs, again, if you, I mean, I'm sorry to, to keep talking. I'm no, go after it. You're good, man. But we got no time limit. When, when you think about, for example, like the middle class, right? As a class, which in the United States, no one has an understanding really what class is. Like middle class is not based on your income. Because there are a lot of skilled trades workers who think they're middle class. No, middle class is a economic is a is a class destination that's based on your relationship to labor. So middle class people Have more control over what happens with their labor. And oftentimes they are administrators of the wheel of businesses and corporations. The middleman. Yeah, they're like literally, they're like the managers, they're the people who operate on behalf of like the, you know, Jeff Bezos to make sure that like everyone is producing like profits for him, like efficiently. Get off your cell phone, like get to the job, like, hey, what are you doing? Did you send in those reports, right? So, like, those middle class people, especially in the United States, create this kind of buffer between, like, the working class and the ruling class, right? They're the example that people aspire to, but that middle class is big when the capitalists can afford it and shrinking when they can't. So we have to understand that a, a large part of like how the middle class functions uh, at the interest or at the behest of the capitalists is this buffer um, that uh, between like the, the 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 working class and oppressed people and the capitalists uh, and common and co- it, it, it's a combination of telling people, oh no, you can do it, you you if you really work hard. I'm an example of it. No, no, no. This society. Like, it can work for you. You just have to find a way to make it work. They also are there to um, make sure, I don't want to say make sure, but, like, they, they obfuscate, like, this truth of, like, the ways in which inequality is not only maintained, but, like, how some of these, like, privileges that certain people get are also temporary.
2: I feel like you're literally reading me the book uh, Brave New World. Have you ever read all this? A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Mm. So in the book, it's a fictional book. It's like right up there with uh, 1984 mm. and uh, Animal Farm and stuff. Okay. And it's in the, like, when they design everyone, everyone's made, like, it's, it's science fiction, but everyone's made in a factory, you know, and, like, they get established a class in its design that it goes like E1 to E9, kind of like in the military. And everyone's designed when they're like bread that like they're taught like, yeah, you know what? You're not the richest, but at least you're not the poorest.
0: Mm-hmm. That's and funny. it is, it's,
2: it's literally driven to this point where it's like, everyone goes, yeah, you know, I'm not rich, but at least I'm not that guy. And what you were just literally describing with the middle class, the upper class and lower class, that's what it almost is. They propagate the middle class by telling them like, well, you're not poor. You're doing great. And they go, yeah, you're right. At least I'm not poor
0: yeah and tristan you've you've mentioned a lot during this uh interview you've you've used the word uh class quite often that yeah, you're,
2: you're giving you're giving dan a chubby
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> quite a bit. well no it's it, because it's it's really it's become this like really weird polarizing word right like when you say uh class warfare or when you say you know um uh Uh, Working class people, like people have like taken that word and and completely hijacked it as if to say, uh, well, when you say working class people, what you really mean is, is, is working class white people, right? Like people have kind of used it as a trope to like perpetuate this infighting between Mm -hmm. the class, (laughs) if -hmm. you will.
2: And like you said, the corporations are right on point. They know what they're doing. Corporations know what they're doing when they make their emblem with the rainbow color because oh, I know it's going to create an argument with people and everyone's going to be arguing about whether or not a company is uh, pro LGBT or anti. And it's distracting everyone from the fact that this company is selling out American jobs to people and paying them $2 an hour or $2 a week in another country. And no one's going to argue about them stifling our wages here and actually becoming more prosperous as Americans, because we're all fighting about something that's, I don't want to say trivial, but it, it encompasses in the uh, the identity of politics.
1: Yeah, we are letting people represent us who don't. Yeah, we're letting and people dictate our conversations. Why, but that's why we have to talk about class, and we have to talk about the need for the working class to represent itself politically, especially, especially oppressed uh, groups like Black people, like LGBTQ people, because Black people are a group of people that includes middle class people. Mm -hmm. And again, those middle class people don't represent me and my experiences, but those are the ones who are often the people you see on TV or you see in the ad that that corporation set up. Like, I don't know if y'all saw this. Oh my God. It was an atrocious um, commercial. I think it was the CIA. They had like used oh, a woman to be like, this is how I like, you know, like, like this is the, the CIA gave me an opportunity to become an American and I get to celebrate my womanhood and like right. be Latina and proud in the CIA. And you're like, what is going on? <laughs> or but,
2: another, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No,
1: but no, I'm saying like, yeah, you, that's the thing. The capitalists make space for oppressed people to play a role in managing that oppression against their own folks. Um, yeah. and, and and that, I think, um, is the reason why we have to make sure that the total problem of exploitation, because Jeff Bezos is exploiting everybody, the people in America, the people outside of America, right? In fact, it is... The United States' ability to exploit whole continents outside of it that allows us to have the privileges that under us buffer. Yep. Right against us recognizing even what class we are because even working class people can be relatively well off or at least that was true. The economic crisis, especially since 2008, has made that less and less true in the United States, and that's. In part, the context, right, of like the growth in the BLM movement, um, also the response to COVID and essential workers, where people were like, "Oh yeah, no, I'm a worker. I, I actually matter. I actually make this shit happen." And even though you're a hero, are celebrating me, like they're not giving <laughs> me fucking wage increases. Right, they're barely giving me PPE. Like you know, so force everybody to be like, "Damn, this place that I worked for that said they cared for me." actually doesn't. And I knew that, but now I really know that. And so this is the moment for us to help people like consolidate um, those experiences they had over the last two years that make it clear, like the realities of a society dividing into classes um, and and why it is important for the working class to unite with other oppressed sectors to fight our common enemy.
0: That's actually a great, uh, a great quick transition here, Tristan, because uh, Corey and I both wanted to talk to you a little bit about the um, the the huge um, and, and hopefully it continues labor movement in this country. Obviously, Amazon and Starbucks are the two big ones. Apple. And- and, and apple and everything that you you just said almost sounded like I'm not I'm not accusing you of taking this man's words but it kind of sounded like it came out of Christian Small's mouth when it comes to you know he every interview he's done he, he hasn't given a shit what show he's been on right the guys talked to Tucker Carlson he's talked to you know uh, left publications anybody who will talk to this man and it's for that reason and his his basically his his whole thing is like we're going to stop Quitting our shitty jobs to go get another shitty job—we're just going to make the job that we have less shitty. Oh, I f- oh!
2: When he said that, when he goes, "Don't quit, unionize," <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I yeah. was
0: like,
1: "Yeah, beautiful, yeah." And he, and he and Chris Small is a person who, you know, incidentally, I did um, uh, event with him. I spoke on a panel that he was a part of uh, that occurred uh, during um, like BLM in twenty twenty. Um, entitled like Black Struggle is Class Struggle Uh, because uh, the organization that was hosting uh, that event that I'm now part of, Left Voice, um, uh, went to the first press conference that Chris Small ever called about walking out at Amazon um, when they weren't giving folks PPE and doing precautionary measures for COVID. Um, And, you know, all of the people who are part, this Generation you who are part of like this growing labor movement were um, people who participated and who were impacted by like the BLM movement of 2020, right? And so there's an interesting dynamic where people are also bringing like politics into like the struggle for labor too. And they, you know, are kind of instinctively connecting the dots, right? Um, between these struggles and why it's important uh, for uh, workers to have a union and for that union to fight for better wages, but also better working conditions and, and better policies, right? Uh, and I think Chris Smalls tweeted, you know, uh, women's rights is, is, is a labor issue or something uh, to that effect um, when, uh, you know, the decision, uh, when Dobbs dropped from, from the Supreme Court. Um, and so I think that that's something that we definitely have to like tap into because it's that relationship that is the source of the power that we need to fundamentally transform the society and liberate us uh, from the oppression that we face under capitalism.
2: Connect Road to the class. I like that. I like that a lot. yeah,
1: because it is. I mean, the people who are going to be most impacted by, the Dobbs decision is working class women and people. Exactly. Of color. Um, Rich and, women
2: can and, get their abortions right. anytime they want.
1: That's right. And, and, and it also even on the issue of LGBTQ and trans rights, like uh, LGBTQ folks are a range of people from the very poor and working class to the Pete Buddha judges. Right. And, yeah, Pete Buttigieg and his friends, even his trans friends, they're going to be good because they can afford to be good. Like the people who are going to be the most impacted are the working class people who are already struggling and already under attack and already find in a thousand different ways it hard to get a, st- a steady job um that could provide for them and their families.
2: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You got anything, Dan?
0: I mean I I have run out.
1: <laughs> I okay, mean I'm, so sure I, can I, uh, I'm sure we could sit
0: I'm sure we could sit here and t- sit here and talk to Tristan for 3 hours but uh eventually we got to let the man go.
1: Yeah yeah
0: yeah. No, no, <laughs> you got you got anything else, Corey?
2: Uh so the only thing I had was I was listening to cuz like I wanted to just try to do a little bit of homework and like refresh my memory and I listened to the the uh Detroit Today uh interview again and one of the things he came out I forget oh I forget his
1: name it's Steve. Oh um Steven Henderson?
2: Yep, Steve Henderson, yep. And uh there was a weird thing that he kept going back to in the beginning of your interview that he kept saying something to the to the likes that you were stepping on toes of other activists uh-huh. in the city. Uh-huh. Do you remember that part where he's yeah. like, it's almost like you were playing leapfrog or something?
1: Sure.
2: And when I heard that, I was thinking immediately, I was like, why why does that matter? And I'm wondering if there's a some sort of uh hierarchy. It's almost like there was some sort of inclination to make him even say that, that is there like a hierarchy in the activism in the city to where everyone's like, yo, you're supposed to stay in your place. We'll handle this. Or,
1: I mean, uh short answer is yes, but that is the hierarchy that you run into when you're, you know, um, Confronting these, you know, social media activists or okay, like okay. these, like liberals, right? Like yep. they are misleaders who are presented and who present themselves as representatives of, like, you know, the labor movement or social justice movements, but in reality, they do so at the behest of okay. the Democrats, right? Or their message was their filtered and approved. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was stepping on toes. Um, Good. Because I wanted to make sure that the movement got to speak for itself and that the movement got to speak independent of the interests of Democrats and Republicans. Um, yeah, those activists who encourage people to march in the suburbs and not the city, yeah, I wanted to step on their toes and wanted to make sure that they were challenged because their uh, uh, notion of what was necessary um, was in direct contradiction with the reality of the struggles of black working class people in the city who on a daily basis face repression from the police, right? Mm-hmm. How many of those activists talked about how good the Detroit police department was and how the issue of George Floyd. Would Craig never, took a knee. That's right. That's right. No, that's <laughs> right. Everyone loved Craig. And, you know, miraculously discovered, oh, my goodness, he's a Republican.
2: Oh, right. He decided oh, he's he running didn't, Republican.
1: didn't know No, no, no. But then he also voted for Trump. He's right. a Trumper. It, it, it should have been clear after he was on Fox News for the 15th time. But even before that, the policies that he was implementing were policies that Republicans were um, hailing as the way to solve the issues of black and brown communities, which was further criminalization, right? Like further militarization of the police department. Um, And yeah, there were a bunch of of those like professional, you know, established like leaders um, who, you know, marched with Gretchen Whitmore without demanding anything from her. Um, Yeah, we were stepping on those toes, but the whole movement was stepping on those toes. You're right. We, ha- we actually have to learn how to do that We have to challenge these misleaders Expose them for people that don't represent the movement Which again, going back Why it's so important for activists To create space where we have debates and discussions And make collective decisions as a movement Not just as 12 activists in a room That tells everyone else what to do No, when we are with each other we need to use that as spaces to make decisions as a collective, because that's the only way that we make sure the movement is fully represented and that we combat all of those misleaders who say they speak for us, but who don't, who speak for the mayor, who speak for, you know, Chief Craig, who speak for Gretchen Whitmer. Like, I'm not interested. They'll, those people don't represent me.
0: Yeah, and, and when you say that, it's like, political party be damned, it doesn't matter. And this this, this I know, Corey, that we're going to be really good friends with Tristan, because he just found a way uh, to shit on both sides of this duopoly for very legitimate reasons. That's right. what we do on this show, so... Um, and I was just going to yeah. say,
2: actually, was, uh, you know, and I think that the, the kind of sort of the proof is in the pudding, well, here in the city, it was drawn as a class issue. And I remember coming down to the, the protests and hearing some of the speeches before we walked and everyone saying like, we want you down here to walk with us. But remember, this is our city. We live here. Don't come down here just to act a fool and then go home.
1: Those, those, And those were, first off, a lot of people don't own shit downtown, okay? Dan Gilbert owns 90% of downtown. So first off, whatever the fuck you do or break downtown is not our shit. And I don't want black people being confused about us collectively owning shit we don't. So, a right. lot of the people who were saying that message were misleaders who, was, in reality, uh, were putting themselves in front of masses' property to make sure it wasn't broken. And my thing is to the movement, we have to be strategic about what we're doing and making sure that we don't bring undue, uh, unnecessary consequences of repression on the citizens of detroit but we do what the movement needs done and fuck a uh what what what's that downtown um uh that store where people were protecting the window the i can't even think Nike's fuck nike. nike store
0: yeah
1: <laughs> i don't give a fuck yeah. if nike store windows are busted a black I don't even think they were, though. Life. Were they? I, no, but no, nothing actually was. Right, destroyed. that's nothing, that's kind of what I was getting even to. If it was destroyed, I wouldn't give a flying fuck. No, I get that. That's not the point. Like, and that's not our shit. Like, people need to know that we need to stop being representatives. And protectors are rich people's shit there
0: there's a there's a small difference there's no actually there's a major difference too when we talk about class like you going and busting up the Nike store is way different than you know busting up the the mom and pop shop across absolutely. the street
1: absolutely o- owned by absolutely. you know
0: just a couple of people it's absolutely. not the same thing
1: <laughs> absolutely
2: yeah well, what I was getting at is uh the uh the protests that came down into the city. And you had that feeling and like you're talking about with the like class versus like, like liberalism and ideology and stuff. And like, it had a different feel. And here you are in quotations, stepping on toes and you ran protests and everything down in the city that didn't lose its message. Yeah. Well, in the rest of the country that was infiltrated by liberals and
1: things like that, the message was lost in the chaos.
2: Yeah.
1: And we were strategic. It also was that we weren't just trying to, like, you know, um, uh, randomly break windows. Like, you know, we did what was (laughs) necessary. Um, It was. and, And the thing that was very mature about the movement nationally was that the things that were destroyed were these, like, big corporations and the police departments, right? Like the institutions themselves, CBS. Yeah. yeah. Right. no one was busting up just right. Like, like, you know, there was something that was interesting to me about like how in a sense directed people's anger were like, they had a sense and knowledge of like, you know, uh, these institutions as doing harm. And I remember looking in, at Seattle, for example. Um, uh, some of the coverage that some of the independent media were doing. Um, and there was this black man who was like, yeah, just make sure not to bust up the mom and pop stores. And I was like, oh, like people are trying to distinguish and think about targets. So, and yeah, no, we need to bring (laughs) the strategy. Just destroying property by itself isn't powerful. And that's not what we were doing, but I just also want to make it clear. Right. Fuck Nike,
0: right? Yeah. Fuck them
1: and them <laughs> them and their properties. Yeah. I don't give a fuck. Like, right. if that's what needs to happen, if all the windows of CVS in this nation have to break for black people to stop being murdered, break all those fucking windows.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's a very warranted thing. Like, like what's what's a window compared to a
1: life? Right. I don't know who that black woman was, but you know, there was that speech going around where she was quoting. Uh, but she was like, y'all broke the contract. She was like, yeah, we were supposed to keep the peace, but you were supposed to not like, you know, assault us, like kill us. You're right.
2: Because the police agitated everything before everything went to shit. And
1: Mm. so she said, yeah, yeah, as evidenced by
2: by a fucking journalist on live TV being shot with rubber bullets by the police. That's and right. then another one being arrested on live TV. You know, okay. the only other place in the entire world I've seen a, a journalist being uh, arrested on live TV was in China.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, that's the thing. For all this talk about, you know, freedom um, and freedom of assembly, like we saw that go out the window 100%. Um, in 2020, yeah. and, you know, which is why the majority of the charges, that were against protesters were dropped and even in shelby township like you know we were able to expose like how outrageous it it was to bring felony charges against protesters for marching in the street to call for a violently racist chief of police to resign
0: yeah i mean I think the unless you have something to expound on that, Corey. I think the last thing the last thing that I that I really had for you, uh, Tristan, is you you hear this um, this idea that movements like yours and and other leftist movements they have this unbelievably great ability to mobilize, but not necessarily the best ability to organize, which is why often we see these movements kind of fizzle out. I'm wondering, do you have a, do you have a solution for that? How do we, how do we get better organization and, and still keep the good mobilization that we see all the time?
1: Well, I mean, here's a couple of things that is worth remembering. Organizers don't build movements. Movements cannot be artificially built. Movements depend on a large sector of the population to make a decision to do something. Uh what, Organizers do can affect that decision, Um, but in the end, like people have to make that choice, right? So, to me, what it means to build better organization is to build organizations that can, when people decide to take action, help ensure that that action is as um, uh, has what it needs to be as sustainable as possible. And to actually articulate and strategically fight like for his goals. And so, you know, Detroit will breathe, you know, the thing that we always say is that, you know, you can't um, replace like the movement or, or the masses, right? Like you can't like, you know, take the place of the, of the masses. And what our role should be is when people are, you know, make a decision to act that we elevate their demands and that we help like, organize them so that what they're doing can be, you know, I'm repeat myself, sustained, um, but also to make sure that their demands not only are clear, but that they think about strategies that can actually win those demands that require, at minimum, political independence from the Democrats and Republicans, right? Um, and, and, and it requires... Um, uh, certain mechanisms to make sure collective discussion and decision um, happens. Uh, because that's also the best way to make sure that things um, kind of stick around is if people get to see themselves directly as participants of the movement that get to shape the movement that they're participating
0: in. Something that you said there that that uh you said i mean you said a lot of great things there but the the part that stuck out to me was the independence from republicans and democrats because i think that's actually something that occupy wall street did really well for a minute um and obviously another movement that fizzled out pretty quickly but uh it's it i think it's something that's so important because what you always see is whenever there's a movement you know like detroit will breathe and others the, there there's always this this need from one political side to push that over to the other side and say that belongs to those evil people, don't support them or you know, and vice versa they'll they'll use it the same way on the other side. So I think uh, getting away from that duopoly and really focusing on what the movement actually represents, like Occupy did, except in a more sustainable way is 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 the biggest thing that I took out of what you just said
1: hmm Yeah.
2: yeah that's, that's oh, go ahead. Uh, it's like uh I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you watched the Jimmy Doors podcast. No, I don't. But uh he there's a thing he says on there when we because ta- we've been talking a lot about class and stuff. He says uh if he goes if someone walks up to you and goes, Well now there's there's a there's a Trump supporter that's uh agreeing with what we're saying, and it's like well what do we do? It's like you declare victory.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like a Trump supporter it, wants to join our movement. What are we supposed to do about this? you declare victory (laughs)
2: because you're getting people from all across the spectrum to come and agree with you on what you're fighting for.
1: But what is really important is articulate what it is that we're fighting for. Because the problem is we don't have a shared understanding really, Mm -hmm. because there are people who mean completely different things when they say defund the police And, and when they're talking about abolishing the police And when they're calling for killer cops to be jailed. Right. So that's why there's it's so essential for the movement to have space, to have discussions and debates and not just with the right wing, but with each other Mm -hmm. so that we can make sure that everyone who joins us joins us on a basis that is super clear about what we are saying. And that is when we can declare victory. Um, not only when, you know, people who voted for Trump, you know, say, OK, like I understand like inequality and the way that we have to do that is through a movement of the working class and the press. But you also get to declare victory with Democrats do that, too, um, because like that's the thing we're, we're 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 trying to. Yeah, we are trying to win people over. We have to understand that people aren't as black as white as we would like them to be because how many people who voted for Trump would have voted for Bernie Sanders if he hadn't made it primary. Oh my right? God. We talk like, about that all the time. Um, it's
2: probably an uncomfortable <laughs> amount. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so we have to reckon with that and like, and, and be prepared to confront people with that. Like, look, I'm not, my audience isn't like Trumpers because they're a particular type of people. Mm-hmm. My audience though, is people who are trying to think about these issues critically. And the way that I help that is by trying to expose the true nature of these institutions and bring like these ideas for people to think about And anyone who's prepared to do that. Like, yeah, that's who I'm trying to talk to. Yeah. You know what? And what is funny is that includes, um, well, that's a later conversation, but that includes a bunch of people like who, you know, before Trump like voted Republican, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, those people existed too. Because we don't talk enough about those people. who are like, okay, I could fuck with the racism of the Republican <laughs> party, but this is a bit much, like, Right, right, like, right. <laughs> right like this, this, I, think, I think this might not be like my cup of tea. And you're like, great. And this is an opportunity to tell you, well, that's what you've always In a set of ways, um, uh, aligned yourself with this is just more, and you know, like, we again using this as an opportunity to be like, oh, let's talk about because what what people allow because the the liberals are no less guilty of enforcing inequality than the republicans, Mm
0: -hmm. yeah. And 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 it's so much of it is in you know, I you're I'm assuming you're the same way, Tristan. I know Corey is. It just there's always got to be just a little bit of self reflection and like having that self reflection kind of come together collectively because there just isn't enough self reflection. It's it's just so much. I mean, I had a little bit of it earlier when we were talking about policing and your experiences versus mine. I like think that's that gives me something for self reflection. And I just everybody's so quick to defend their position. It's just so fast. I got to defend my position. I got to make sure I'm not wrong. And it's like I've always viewed that. I kind of enjoy being wrong sometimes because it it is an opportunity for education.
1: Yeah, no, me too. I enjoy when you know, like I remember, like someone asked me, um, like after four days of like the marches, you know, how long do you think this is gonna last? And I was like, probably two weeks at I didn't even think DWB was still going to be around. So yeah, I'm very glad that I was wrong, <laughs> right? And, and, and I think that there, but we, we, that's in part because we live in a society that doesn't make space for that. So part of what's so tricky is that to self-reflect, but also to reflect collectively requires us to do a set of practices that in a sense are unnatural to us that require us to unlearn a lot of the social norms that mm-hmm. we were taught and socialized with. Cognitive dissidence.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, think it's a, I, <laughs> yep. think, I think I think it's a good place to wrap. We're at like nine uh, well, minutes now, Tris, unless so, you have something else, Corey.
2: I just wanted to say that like the perfect, so I've been, so once uh, the George Floyd murder happened and I started like, instead of just sitting on the sidelines and joining in, and then you reached out to me, I've been following your little, your little career sunset and like pretty closely and just watching the little improvements and seeing charges get dropped and then charges come up on some other bullshit and then get dropped and things like that. And then it's just, it's really interesting to watch And I'm really excited to see where you go. And then another thing I wanted to bring up was uh, there was, when we were talking about class issues, like there's a picture I have, it's on my phone and it's, it's a picture of you, and it's the perfect image of what you're actually trying to convey when you talk about class versus like all these little ideology things. It's when you first got released and there was that militiaman. I think it was in the Freep. And that militiaman walked up to you and you guys, you didn't fist bump because it was COVID and you guys are mm-hmm. elbow. And there's this picture that's plastered on the news and you and these surrounded by militiamen
1: mm-hmm.
2: that were there waiting for you to be released because they were there to help defend you and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it literally reminded me of, there's that meme you always see floating around and it shows the black guy and the white guy fist bumping. And it's like, I got you brother. And then underneath it says the world that the elites are afraid of. And it literally reminded me of that meme and that picture, I actually have it on my phone. I'll send it to you after this, just so you have it too. It's such a powerful image of what your, what your message that you said tonight is literally trying to push, if that makes sense.
1: No, no, thank you. I Appreciate that. Yeah. Absolutely,
0: uh, Tristan Taylor. Detroit will breathe. Um, why don't you tell the people where, where they can find the organization? Uh, maybe some things you got you got coming up, and uh, how they can help.
1: Sure. Um, so our website, which has to be updated, uh, <laughs> don't they all? it has links to all of our social media accounts, which are very active. Uh, it's DetroitWillBreathe.info, and you could uh, catch us on Detroit Will Breathe on Instagram on Twitter. Um, and also on Facebook. Um, and there is where you could keep track of like the um, events that we're organizing. Um, you know, currently we're kind of trying to develop plans for how we you know, proceed as a group uh, in this new political situation. Um, so we'll hopefully have some announcements coming out soon. And again, thank y'all. I appreciate you. For, you know. Oh, absolutely, mm-hmm.
2: Tristan. I hope that uh, I can extend an invite to have you on this show an, an innumerable amount of times because sure. there's a lot of conversations that we can unpack here that we Enough. can just spend hours yes. and I hours. Would, I would love it. I would love it. And I enjoyed every minute of this.
0: Absolutely, Tristan. We appreciate you, man. Yeah.
1: Thank you. We the people cannot stand.